you'd please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 6. We will be focusing our attention on verses 16 through 23 this morning. Uh, We're going to be taking a little break from the New Testament in Ephesians and doing a little tour through the Old Testament, focusing our attention on King David, this righteous king of the Old Testament. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, beginning at verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household, But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly and Gracious Father, we thank you for this word of of David the righteous king. Uh, David the king who pointed to the greater son, uh, Christ Jesus our Lord. And we pray, O Lord, that as we study David, our hearts would burn for his greater son, the true King David, Jesus Christ. So shine the light even in these Old Testament scriptures on your son, our Lord and Savior Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We all know what a killjoy is, don't we? I'm sure we've all encountered a killjoy at some point in our lives. A killjoy, as you all know, is somebody that comes into a rather celebratory mood, uh, some sort of celebration, perhaps a party of sorts, and sort of kills the joy, dampens the mood. Uh, Somebody complains about the food being too hot or the food being too cold or the music being too loud, whatever it is, a killjoy has to ruin that good time. I think oftentimes for kids, parents are killjoys. You parents know anytime you ask your kids to go to bed, it's as though you've told them you're going to sell all their toys to charity the next day. They can't believe that you would be ruining their good time, that you would be telling them to go to bed. And they're having such a good time, they're not even tired. Oftentimes, 
for, for kids, parents, are killjoys. We all know killjoys. People that come in and bring in a negative presence, a negative mood, and an otherwise positive situation. And I think that's what we have here in the character of Michal in our passage. She's sort of a killjoy. We see a rather celebratory mood taking place here in our passage. We see David leaping and dancing before the Lord. We see this great feast for the multitude of Israel. Man, women, and child are partaking in this feast of, of celebration. And in comes Michal, despising David in her heart chastising David in verse 20, being sarcastic with David. And what is, it, what is the joy that Michal is killing, so to speak? Why the celebration here in Israel? Why is David leaping and dancing for joy? Well, it is because the Ark of the Covenant has made its way back into the midst of God's The Ark of the Covenant has successfully entered in to the holy city of Jerusalem. What was the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the Ark of the Covenant, simply put, was where God promised His presence to be. Where the Ark was, was where God would be. In Exodus chapter 25... When God is giving that instruction to, to construct the tabernacle. And in, in Exodus chapter 25, he talks about the ark and he says, You should place the ark in the holy of holies. And there at the ark, where the mercy seat would be placed upon the ark, God's presence would be and he would meet with his people. And he would give him their instruction for how they are to live and his commandments. Where the ark was, was where God's presence was. Yet under King Saul, the the king that has immediately preceded David, the ark was not consulted. We are told in 1 Chronicles 13 that under Saul, he never consulted the ark. Probably over for 20 years, the ark laid hidden away, not centered in the place that it was supposed to be in the holy of holies in the tabernacle. And here King David, one of his first actions as king of Israel is to go and get the ark. One of his first actions is to go and get God. And as we see, this is cause for celebration. All of Israel is is flooding behind David as he's leaping and dancing before the Lord, before the ark of God. What a scene it would be. Many scholars think there was probably... 30,000, 40,000 Israelites following David in this massive celebration of God's presence. Unified joy in Israel because God's presence has entered back into the midst of God's people. And in comes Michal, the killjoy. And though I think it's proper to see Michal as a killjoy, I think the author indicates much more is going on here with Michal. For notice what the author says about Michal, how he describes her. He doesn't describe her as the wife of David. He rather describes her as the daughter of Saul. The author, by labeling Michal this way, is wanting to tell you and I, the reader, something. He wants us to see something about Michal. He wants us to see her connected to that worldly King Saul. 
that worldly King Saul who tried to kill David no less than three times in 1 Samuel 16. That worldly King Saul that time and time again said he repented but then went back to his own way. That worldly King Saul time and time again in 1 Samuel seemed to despise himself. Himself despised David in his heart. And what the author wants us to see is not Michal connected to her husband David, but connected to her father Saul, who was worldly and who was not of God, who was the chosen one of Israel and not the chosen one of God, the man after God's own heart. We notice that Michal is here at the beginning of our passage in verse 16, where she despises David in her heart. And then she is at the end of our passage in verse 23, where she's no longer able able to bear children. I think what's going on here is you have Michal sort of bookending our passage. You have an otherwise dark fringes of our passage, and in between is this light of David. You have unrighteous Michal at the beginning and the end, but packed in between is David, the righteous king. And for the remainder of our time, I want us to look at three ways David manifests righteousness in our passage. And the first way we see in verse 17 through 18, David fears and obeys God. We see that David fears and obeys God. We see that David in verse 17 pitches a house for the ark. And we are told that he places it in its place. This Hebrew word here, placing it in its place, has the idea of placing it in its proper home. He takes the ark and he places it in its home, in the Holy of Holies, where God had always commanded the ark to be. He's placing it in its proper home. He's pitched a tent for the ark. He's taking that ark that had been hidden away for years under Saul, and he's taking it and he's revering it, and he's using it in the way God had commanded it should always be used. David is learning to revere God. He is learning obedience. He is learning from his previous mistake. There had been already a first attempt to bring this ark into Jerusalem. If you'd go back to verse 1, we'll read chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, and we'll read of this first attempt, this failure, to get the ark into Jerusalem the first time. Read with me verse 1 through 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before it. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. 
And he died there beside the ark of God. Here we see this first attempt to bring the ark into Jerusalem is a disaster, a complete failure. And I want to note three things, three problems that we see in these seven verses. First, in verse 3, we see that it is Uzzah and Ohio that are charged to take the ark into Jerusalem. What's the problem here? Uzzah and Ohio were not Levites. They were what we were called Kohathites. Well, in Numbers 4, God is very clear that the only ones that are to carry the ark are to be Levites. So right away, we see disobedience in the charge for who should carry this ark. Uzzah and Ohio are not Levites. Secondly, verse 3, we see that it's carried on a cart. Also, God had always commanded that the ark would have poles hanging off the side, and the Levites would put, or excuse me, poles, rings hanging off the side, and there would be a pole put through those holes, and the Levites would put it on their shoulders, and that's how they were commanded to carry the ark. But here, they're carrying it on a cart. Do you remember who else carried the cart on an ark? Excuse me. Do you remember who else carried the ark on a cart? It was the Philistines. The unrighteous Philistines. Who treated the ark like a common thing. Here we see the Israelites, God's people, treating the ark like a common, unholy thing, just as the Philistines themselves did. And not following the commandments of God. Carrying the ark on their shoulders. Third and finally, in verse 6 and 7, we see that Uzzah touches, Uzzah, excuse me, touches the ark. Well, again in Numbers 4, Levites, those who were prescribed to carry the ark, they themselves weren't allowed to touch the ark. And God himself commands that if somebody touches the ark, they themselves would be destroyed and killed. Well, this is just a long, this is just the, the final straw for God. You have Uzzah and Ohio, Kohathites, and not Levites carrying. They're carrying it as an uncommon thing on a cart. And Uzzah, finally, in this final act of disobedience, reaches out his hand and touches this ark, and God's anger is kindled, and he destroys it. And David is witnessing this. David sees this, and David learns to obey God from this. He learns through discipline. We are told in 1 Chronicles 15, uh, a chapter that uh, gives an account of the same event, that David summons the Levites to carry the ark on poles on their shoulders. David learns from this event. He learns discipline through pain. He learns discipline through suffering. This is often how we learn obedience, isn't it? Through pain through suffering. Like children, when they come to touch the stove that is on, their hand gets burned. And what do they learn? They learn not to touch that stove anymore. And us as new children in Christ, we're given a new life in Christ. Oftentimes we touch the stove when it's on. Oftentimes we reach out our hand for sin and we get burned. And it hurts. And there's suffering. And God drives us toward obedience through. I'll never forget when I read, when I first became a Christian, I read the great work by John, uh, by John Owen, uh, The Mortification of Sin. 
And if you've ever read that book, you know that that is a, a tough book to get through. And I remember every sentence of that book was like God was just staring into my soul and exposing every filthy sin that there was. And it was painful. I, I actually had physical mannerisms. I was actually trying to hide myself from God. It was a painful moment. But here's the thing. While it was probably the most painful moment in my Christian life, it was also one of the most choice. Because I knew that it was God working on me. Because I knew that it was God by His Spirit doing a work on my heart. Though it was painful, though it was a struggle, though there was suffering looking at my sin and having my sin exposed, there was a weird and, and, and strange joy connected to it. And the reality that it was a, a manifestation of God's work, of God working on my heart. We often learn through pain. We often learn through discipline. And friends, I want to encourage you that the pain and the discipline and the suffering is a sign that you are being treated as a child of God the Father. In the book of Hebrews, we are told that the father disciplines us as a father disciplines a child. And it is a sign that he has set his love and his affection on us, and he doesn't want us as we are. He wants us more and more like his son. In Romans 1, we are told, how is wrath manifested now? God leaves people in their sin. When they go to touch the stove, it's not on. It's off. It feels quite pleasant. And so they reach out their hand more and more and more for sin until they call that which is evil good. Brothers and sisters, the fact that our hand is, is burned from time to time from touching the stove of sin is an act of God's grace and an encouragement for us that God is treating us as a father treats his beloved son. We also notice in verse 18 that David offers sacrifices. He offers burnt offerings. He offers peace offerings. What are these? These are, these are signs of an awareness of sin. These are signs of, of David and his sin and, and Israel's sin and his understanding that he is in the presence of a holy God. It's interesting, isn't it, when we compare verse 18, burnt offerings, peace offerings, awareness of sin, with verse 16. Where we see David leaping and dancing with joy. It's a, you, you have to ask yourself, is, is, is David confused here? At one point we see him with unabashed joy before the Lord. And then in just two verses later, awareness of sin. Offering dead animals as a symbol of his, of his conviction over sin and the conviction over Israel's sin. Is David confused? I think what we actually see here is David is teaching us something about what true worship looks like. I think today we have two choices, one of two choices in the church today. We either choose a church that prides itself on joy at the expense of reverence, or we choose a church that prides itself on reverence and obedience at the expense of joy. But here with David, what we see is it's not 
an either or, but it's a both and. Fear and joy go together in the worship of a holy and merciful. God is a God who is an all-consuming fire. He is a God that when Isaiah sees him, he falls down as though dead. Many Old Testament saints we see cannot stand in the presence of an almighty holy God. He is an all-consuming fire. And he is someone to be feared. But at the same time, he is merciful. And he is gracious. Where better, friends, do we see the mercy and grace and the wrath of God meet than at the cross of Christ? What do we see at the cross of Christ? We see God's holy wrath being poured out on His only begotten sinless Son. And in that very act of pouring out His wrath on the Son, He is showing forth mercy and grace to us. At the cross, God's fearful wrath is all-consuming holiness meets with His mercy and His grace. So that when we look to Christ, we can know that we can come into worship and worship with reverent joy in the presence of a holy God who has redeemed His people through the blood of the true Passover Lamb, His Son. We see that David is righteous and that he fears and he obeys God. Secondly, we see that David cares for God's people. David cares for God's people. In verse 18, we see that he blesses the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. He blesses the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. It's interesting, you have this image of David... Uh, offering sacrifices. And now he's blessing people. This has a lot of priestly overtones to it. But David's a king. He's not a priest. Why is he doing the things that the priests were to do? It was the priest that offered sacrifices. It was the priest that then blessed the people after sacrificing. What is going on here? What is the author indicating? By showing David, the king, doing things that the priest would do. We would expect, after David doing these things, something to be said about God condemning David for this action. But it seems as though the silence is deafening. That God is actually allowing this and commending this action. So what are we to make of these priestly overtones, these priestly actions of David? Well, I think what we see is that redemptive history is being pushed more and more towards the culmination point of Jesus Christ, who is the true king, the true prophet, and the true priest. The true priest king. And here with David, God is unfolding his plan just a little bit more within redemptive history. Pushing you and I, the reader, towards that moment when the true priest king will come. So David here we are to see as a type of Christ that is pointing ahead to the true king, the true king 
priest, Jesus Christ. We note also that this blessing is in the name of Yahweh of hosts. It is in the name of the Lord of hosts. Whenever one would bless in the name of someone, it would not be the one that was stating the blessing. It would be the one whose name that was invoked that was truly giving the blessing. So what is David doing here? He's calling for the grace of God to come upon the people of Israel. He's calling for the rich abundance of of God's grace to be with His people. It is the Lord that distributes this blessing. Through David, God blesses His people. In verse 19, we get this image of a great feast. And notice how the author describes this great feast. It is for all the people. It is for the whole multitude. It is for both men and women. That phrase there, both men and women, is something that ought to pop out at us. Usually, if a feast was distributed, it would be given to the male as the head of the household, and then he would distribute it to the rest of the family. But here we see that he gives it to both men and women. There's an indication here of how far-reaching this feast is. It is a grand celebratory feast that David and all of Israel are partaking in through the chosen king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. All of God's people are fed and are satisfied. And only after being fed and satisfied do they depart their homes. So also we, brothers and sisters, are through our King Jesus fed and satisfied. Yet our satisfaction is not in the king offering up food, but it is in the king offering up himself. We are fed and are satisfied when we feed on the bread of blood that comes from heaven. Because Christ is the true burnt offering, because Christ is the true peace offering, we now feed on him. That's what we do here every Sunday when we come together for worship. We come and we feast on Christ, our sacrifice, our bread, through the word read, through the word preached, through our prayers, through the sacraments administered, which is a tangible, physical sign of the word given to us. We come here Sunday after Sunday, time and time again, and we feed on Christ. And only after we are fed do we depart to our hearts. We feed on Christ, the King who offers up Himself. Third and finally, David shows his righteousness in the way he serves God. David is first and foremost a servant of God. In verse 20, we see that David, after blessing all of Israel with this grand feast, now goes home to his wife and to his household to bless that household, to distribute that same abundance of grace that he's just distributed to all of Israel. He wants to share that with his family. But what is he met with? He's not met with a wife that receives grace. He's met with a 
angry wife that meets him out in the street and chastises him, is sarcastic with him. She's so angry she can't even wait for him to come home. Have you guys ever been that angry? Where the object of your anger, you can't wait for it to come to you. You just need to run up to it. That's what we have with Michal. She's looking out of her window. She sees David coming home and she has to run out of her house to meet him with her anger. And she meets him when he is ready to dispose and distribute grace. She is ready to chastise him. She is sarcastic. She calls David a vulgar fellow who has uncovered himself in the sight of female servants. What does she mean when she says that David has uncovered himself? Well, if we look back in verse 14... Just a couple verses before our passage starts, we see that David puts on a linen ephod. What was a linen ephod? Well, a linen ephod would have been this skimpy little robe that was often donned by priests. Yet another indication of priestly overtones. But what we see with David is that he's stripping himself of his royal garb. And he's placing on himself this skimpy, little robe. And for me, call what does she see? She sees regal David, majestic David, taking off his royal garb and putting on a skimpy little robe. In McCall's eyes, David is in a skimpy linen robe dancing like a fool. She calls him a vulgar fellow. This Hebrew term is like low life. He's scum. How does David respond to this chastisement from his wife? Well, we see his response in verse 21 through 22. We see three things in his response. First, David says what he did was before the Lord. What David did was before the Lord. It was not in front of the female servants that David was leaping and dancing. David's worship wasn't on a horizontal level. He wasn't worshiping for others to witness him and to say, oh, look at that man and how worshipful he is, as we at times do, I'm sure. No, David, what he's doing, he's doing it with a full heart and jubilation in the Lord. He's dancing and he is leaping before the Lord of hosts. He didn't do it for the eyes of the female servants. He did it for the eyes of his God and of his Father. Second, we see that David is the chosen one and not Saul. And he has been appointed prince over Israel. This word prince over Israel is an interesting term that David uses here. As we all know, David is the king over Israel. What is David saying when he says he's the prince over Israel? It's often noted by scholars and many commentators that there is no public ceremony that takes place to proclaim David king or to enthrone him in Jerusalem. No public ceremony. No coronation ceremony for David as king. It's as though this great festival connected with the arrival of the ark served as a proclamation of the Lord as king and David as his appointed prince. 
and David as God, the true king's prince, as God, the true king's servant, will continue to bring glory to the true king of Israel. Third and finally, we see that David humbles himself. David humbles himself. Verse 21, I will make myself more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. Now, one note with that verse. In the Hebrew, it literally says, I will be abased in my eyes. Now, we can understand why the English translation would not want to put that in there. Sounds a little strange, abased in my eyes. But that is what the Hebrew states. Now, what is being said when David says, I will be abased in my eyes? Well, it's as though David is saying that he is more concerned with honoring God than fostering his own reputation. He is more concerned with taking the spotlight off of himself. He's willing to be abased in his own eyes in order to shine the glory and the spotlight on God Himself. I'll be abased in my eyes. I'll be more contemptible than this. David sees himself as a servant first and as a king second. Commentator Dave Ralph Davis says this, For David, humility is dignity. To him there is nothing servile about groveling before God. But the female servants, David says, he will be held in honor of. The female servants, the vulgar fellows, the lowlifes will honor David. The lowlifes will see what Michal herself was unable to see. David, royal King, regal, majestic David becomes what is low and despised in the worldly eyes of Michael. And what is the result? God is glorified and David is honored among the meek and the lowly. Verse 23, we get the, the result of all of this. Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now, whether or not this is David refusing to have relations with Michal, or whether it's a curse that's coming down from God himself, the effect and the result is the same. The line of Saul has now ceased, while the line of David will continue on to the person of Christ and into eternity. The line of Saul has ceased, but David's line will continue and it will culminate in the person of Christ. What do we get with this encounter between Michal and David? Well, I think what we get with this encounter between Michal and David is the comparison and the dichotomy between external appearances and true joy in the Lord. With Michal, she she is concerned with external appearances, while David is concerned with true, public joy in the Lord. This was a public display of joy before the Lord. All of Israel is partaking in this celebration. 
Michal should have been down there being part of the celebration. But what do we see her doing? She's up in her ivory tower. She's scorning. She's despising. She's hating David. She is despising and loathing this public display of joy that David has, this abasement in his own eyes in order to bring glory to God in public. Dear friends, our world today will be alright with nominal religion. They're okay with religion behind closed doors. But true public joy, out for the public to see, it will not tolerate. In the documentary film, Expelled, director Ben Stein interviews an atheist in this film. I can't remember where the atheist is from. He's at some university. And the atheist says this. Listen to these words. Religion is like knitting. We need to get people to see that it's something fun you get to do on the weekend and not something that affects your life as it has so far. I wonder, brothers and sisters, are we prepared to push against such an idea as this? Is our religion cold? Is our religion something we do on the weekend? Are we concerned about our religion being politically correct? Or is our religion brought forth not only on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday as well? Do we practice the same joy that David practices before the Lord in this passage? Do we we hold out joy for the Lord in public for all to see so that they can come to us and ask, what is it that causes such joy? What is it that, that, that creates such a life for you? Is our religion cold? Or is it a religion that is unabashedly joyful in Christ? The Prince of Peace, who has shed his blood for us and has blessed us abundantly. Might we become fools in the eyes of the meekals of our world in order to bring glory and honor to Christ, the true King. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly and Gracious Father, we pray that your Spirit would be given to us, O Lord. That we would be like David, practicing true public joy in the presence of all. That we would be abased in our own eyes. That we would not seek out our own reputation, but that we would seek your glory. And seek to exalt and magnify Christ in our very lives. We ask and we pray, O Lord, give us your Spirit that we might do this faithfully, according to your word. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.